want to thank you guys so much for being here in church with us this morning. Whether you're here with me live or you're in Limick or Plymouth meeting or you're watching online, it's an honor to be here in church with you this morning. My name is Jordan and I have the privilege over the next few moments of speaking with you. Uh, and I'm going to read from, from, from the Bible, from God's word uh, over the next few moments. What we believe as a church uh, is that it has the power of life and death. Uh, that it could change your life if you would allow it. And so uh, I am just excited uh, about what's going to happen here today. We are in a brand new message series starting this week called Mind Over Matter. Uh, and if you don't know what that means, basically just for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about a similar topic. Uh, and so we're going to talk uh, around this idea uh, of our mind, of perspective. And so I want to ask you a question uh, just to start. By a raise of hands, how many at, at all of our campuses, uh, you have at one point in your life believed something then got all the facts, and then you no longer believed it. Like, has, has anybody ever been, been there? Okay, a couple of you. Like, let me just give you an example, right? When I, was, uh, when I was a broke college kid, which was like a couple days ago, right? And so my wife and I, we were trying to get the most reliable vehicle that you could get. And so I, at the time, I believed it was a Subaru, right? Like, like some people, they live and breathe and die Subarus. Uh, and what you don't know is Subarus have been designed by Satan, that's in the Bible. Look it up, okay? And so I was driving to our Plymouth meeting campus, right? Shout out to all you up there. And uh, right before Ikea, my car exploded uh, in the middle of the highway, right? And so if you're at that campus and you were driving by, now you know. Uh, this was about a year ago, and people were beeping at me, and I was like, you see that there's a fire underneath my hood. I'm not choosing to be here. It's not some elaborate prank, right? And so I just managed to make it uh, off of the highway, and I was in the search for a new vehicle. And uh, I don't know if it's because, uh, you know, Pastor Ian at the time was kind of my saving grace, and he showed up in his beautiful blue F-150. But I just knew then and there that it was God's will that I drive a truck. And so I grew up driving a truck. I grew up driving a Dodge Ram. That was the car that I learned to drive on. Uh, and so I'm not like a Ford or a Dodge or anything like that. But man, when I saw that truck pull up, I was like, heaven has opened up and I have seen the Lord and it is good. And so I went on a search uh, and I found myself a sweet black on black F-150, right? It was, it was, it was kind of my, my pride and joy, you know, and also my daughter. But like I was... I really like this truck, and I would drive it as much as I could, any excuse I could get. I would have told you at the time, a truck is the best vehicle you can own, right? And I'm not going to lie, I was in denial for a few months, uh, but this weird thing happened where my Discover bill, it just kept going up, and so I would be like, honey, how many shoes do you need? And she would be like, honey, I haven't bought shoes in three months, right? And I was like, well, I don't know what it is then. It's just the Discover bill is probably wrong, right? And so finally, I came to terms with, I was spending three times as much on gas as I had in the past, right? And then a couple, few, uh, a couple weeks later, I found out that I was having twins. And I made the mistake of Googling, how many diapers do you need for twins? And in that moment, I realized a truck is the dumbest vehicle that you can own, right? Like, I, I sold it as fast as I could, right? I bought a little uh, Prius knockoff. It's not even a Prius, and I question, you know, my masculinity every time I climb in that car. But let me just tell you, every three weeks when I fill it up, I'm like, you guys with trucks are dummies, right? All this money is staying in my bank account, you know, until I buy the diapers. But, like, that is how powerful perspective is, right? P perspective can take you from believing one thing to believing something 
completely different. And I think what sometimes we miss when we read the Bible is I believe one of the main things that Jesus was trying to communicate both to the people that would have been alive at that time and now to us reading later, uh, with all of his miracles, everything that he did, everything that he said, I think the number one thing he was trying to communicate was this. Maturity in Christ has little or nothing to do with what's happening to you. It has everything to do with what's happening in you. That we're going to be studying this over the next few weeks, this idea that our mind can be over our matter. And today I've titled the message, What's the Matter? Because I think if we were to ask each other, hey, you know, what's the matter with you? We would probably say, oh, well, you don't know. My boss, you know, he promoted this person and not me. This person gets all of the breaks, but I never get the breaks. I can never find the right guy or the right girl. It's the stuff that's out there. And I would argue that the matter is actually your mind. That as followers of Jesus, we have been called to think differently from other people. That perspective, perspective is powerful. And if you were to walk away with one thing today, I would hope it would be this. That if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you no longer have the right to be a victim. Like if you were to walk away with one thing, and remember one thing, it's this. If you have called yourself a follower of Jesus, if you say that you're a Christian, right, you no longer have the right to be a victim. And I think because of our pride, we would probably be less willing to admit how often we actually are victims. And so I just started thinking about this week, you know, how do we act like victims in our world? And I kind of came up with three mindsets that I think have, have plagued not only people who follow Jesus, but just our entire world. And the first one is this, the I can't help it mindset. Now, don't raise your hand, but, but how many of us have dealt with this before? You'll say things like this. I just can't control my decisions because of what has been done to me. I just can't help it, right? For myself, I would say, you know, when my babies are screaming in the middle of the night, right? If you don't know, I had twins at the same time. That's like a special type of testing by Jesus. And I have a three-year-old uh, that is nearing the end of, you know, diapers and moving into, you know, being a real person now. Hallelujah. Uh, but it all happened at once. I'll call it the perfect storm. And so when they're all screaming in the middle of the night, and inevitably then I end up screaming in the middle of the night slash crying, I'll look at my wife and I say, I just can't help it. I'm not patient. If they would just stop screaming, then I could be patient. Or with my three-year-old, if she could just stop being my life's narration and asking what I'm doing at every... I'm just breathing, honey. I'm breathing right here. I'm not doing... What are you doing, daddy? I'm breathing. I'm, I'm in the bathroom and I'm trying to get away from you, right? Like if, if she would just stop doing that, then I could be, I could be a patient person. Or you, you, you'll date the wrong guy or the wrong girl because you'll say, man, my past has left me this way and I just can't... I can't help it. Or maybe you were raised in a house where the budget uh, was skinnier than a millennial's skinny jeans, right? Like it was tighter. Some of y'all looking at my jeans now. These are slim fit. And so, not skinny. Like you were raised and the budget was tight. And so you'll say about yourself, man, I just can't be generous. I just, I just can't be generous. I can't help it. The second one is this, the I don't have it mindset. You'll say things like this, well, if I just had fill in the blank, then of course I would be successful. Or, or if I had, this is my favorite, if I had this much money, then obviously I would tithe. If I just, you have it in your head, if I just made this amount, then of course I would tithe. 
Or, or maybe you're thinking, man, if I had enough money to hire a nanny and a landscaping service and an Instacart, right? The groceries that come to you. It's like magic. And, and like if I just had all that, then I would be less stressed and I would be on church on time every week. Like we think we can't do what God has called us to do because inevitably, inherently, we don't have what we need. And the last one is this, the I can't do it mindset. Essentially, what we believe here is that I'm just not capable of doing great things. God doesn't use people like me. God doesn't use people like me, and so we won't try to do anything great because failure uh, is just too terrifying of an option. And so I want to look at these three mentalities, but, but before we do, I want to say this, just kind of a side note. Church, if we were to understand this, I just want to tell you what the implications would be. Uh, we would watch God move, and we would not be able to fit people in our buildings. Because here's the truth. Our world is filled with victims. I mean, you hear it all the time. It's all we talk about. What that person did to me. What this person did to me. I can't help it because of this. I was raised this way. My mom walked out of me. But, you know, this, 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 and this. We talk about all these reasons, and everybody that you know is probably a victim. And can I just tell you, you will stick out if you become a victor. Someone who their past should have conquered them, but somehow instead they seem to have joy. They seem to be happy when I see them. They're not angry with their parents for treating them the way that they did. They're not angry at their brother or sister for betraying them. They're not mad at their dad for walking out on them. Instead, they have forgiven them. Can I just tell you, that is your testimony? You wouldn't have to invite people to church. They would start to ask you to come to church. Like We cannot miss how significant this is. And so I want to talk about these three mentalities. And the first one is this, the I can't help it mentality. And for each of these, I have a story from the Bible that I want to talk you through so that you can begin to see, man, there are people in the Bible, they're not all perfect, they dealt with the same things that, that I deal with. And so there's a man named Matthew, and if you don't know anything about the Bible, uh, we'll start here. Jesus shows up on the scene, right? He's about halfway through the Bible, if you don't know. He's in the New Testament. Jesus shows up, and before he starts doing miracles, before he starts doing all these wild things, before he starts doing, uh, you know, groundbreaking, split time in half things, he goes out and he calls 12 people to be his close followers, right? We call them the disciples. And there's a man named Matthew who's one of them. He's known as Levi, uh, Matthew, same person. Uh, and he is what they call in the Bible a tax collector. Now, if you don't know a lot about the Jewish nation of this time, and why would you? <laughs> they were not people that were liked by many. Like the tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth. And so the reason that they were is because Rome was the world superpower at that time. And the Israelites, they were ruled by Rome. Now, Rome was smart. Instead of wiping out all of the nations that they conquered, they kept them around so that they could build their infrastructure and make them a larger superpower. And so the Israelites, they were one of these nations that were ruled by Rome. Now, Rome was also smart in that they would keep all of their subjects stricken by poverty. And so what they would do is they would levy these huge taxes on the people of the nations that they conquered so that they could never get out from under the debt that they owed. And they would go into the towns and collect these taxes. But again, the Romans were smart. And so instead of sending their own people, they would enlist people from these nations. There's no funny business going on. There's no language barrier. We're going to go and find an Israelite to help us to collect these taxes from the Israelite. And that would have been what was considered a tax collector. And they would have been considered defectors, traitors, traitors to their own people working for the Roman government now. 
In fact, the tax collectors were so hated that I think at some point they got wise to the fact that nobody from their nation and their past was going to like them anymore. And so what they decided was, you know what? My fellow Israelites, they don't know how much we're being taxed. I'm going to tell them it's more, and then I'm going to take the rest and I'm going to put it in my pocket. Like that's why they were so hated by their fellow Israelites. And so we meet a man named Matthew. Jesus comes to him, and I want to read to you what happens in Matthew 9. Starting in verse 9, read along with me. It's going to be on the screens. You can look in your Bible app as well. It says this, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, the church people, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Jesus overhears and he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I want to read to you three verses later something interesting that Jesus says that probably if you've read it before, you thought, what in the world is Jesus talking about? We're going to get to learn today. Okay, so we're in Matthew 9, starting in verse 16. It says this, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins, because if they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, no, no. They pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. What the heck is Jesus talking about, right? Like he's talking about dinner, there's the sick, there's the righteous, then he's talking about clothes and he's talking about wine. I thought Jesus didn't like wine. Now I'm learning Jesus likes to party. What's going on here? And so if you don't know, what would have been tradition back then is, is for wine, uh, in order to be stored, they would have designed these wine skins uh, with the ability to flex and to breathe. Because if you don't know anything about wine, it needs to aerate, it needs to breathe in order to mature. And so they would put it in these wine skins, and the new ones would be built with flexibility to be able to uh, adapt to the shape that that wine needed. But if you were to put it into an old wineskin, the old wineskin was already stretched out, used old, and so it did not have the flexibility to adapt to this new wine. And so when they would put the new wine in, it would ruin both of them. It would explode because the wine, it would breathe. And what's interesting about the Bible is, if you don't know this, there are four accounts of Jesus and his life here on earth. In every single one of them, Matthew is called by Jesus, and the very next set of verses, Jesus is talking about wineskins. Now, we can't miss this because Jesus often spoke in metaphor, and here's what I think Jesus is trying to say. Because listen, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's just watched Matthew, and this is a great picture of some people who did not get it, and someone who, who got it. And I think what Jesus is saying is, you can't take this new, daring, radical, risky, adventurous way of living that's found in Jesus now, and shove it into your old way of thinking. I think the Pharisees would have done this. Well, I'm totally cool with Jesus, as long as it means I don't have to give anything up. I mean, think about how easy it would have been for Matthew to have this mentality. I just can't help it. I just can't help it. I was raised my whole life to fear poverty. My whole nation was raised to fear poverty. I was one in a million that was chosen for this job. I'm the only person of all my people that's going to have enough when all hell breaks loose. I cannot help it. This is the way that I was raised. And we watch the Pharisees, they respond in a similar way. They, they refuse to adapt their thinking 
to this new way of living that Jesus presents. And what I want us to understand is watch what happens to Matthew when he experiences Jesus. The very first thing we learn about Matthew is he walks away from a very lucrative position, very profitable profession. He just gets up and walks away. In fact, I'll put it this way to maybe help us to understand. Uh, Matthew is what I would call uh, Dutch. Pennsylvania Dutch, Dutch, you're familiar. We all have a little bit of Dutch in us, right? It's the little voice inside of us that tells us to eat the ends of the loaf of bread because it'll save money because we paid for it, right? Like we're all, we're all a little, we got a little bit of Matthew in us, right? And so Matthew, Matthew, let me just tell you, I do not know any penny pinchers and savers going out and throwing parties for other people to come and eat their food. That's a waste. You get your own food, right? I'll have my food. We'll be fine. He leaves his profession and immediately goes and throws a party that the Pharisees who hate him are in attendance of. I mean, just watch what happens when Matthew experiences Jesus. He didn't try to take Jesus this new way. I mean, he had heard whispers of Jesus. Listen, he had heard that the Messiah had come, that there was this new person that was coming in and flipping everything from what it used to be. He had heard about Jesus. And when he comes, he doesn't try to take Jesus and shove him into his old poverty way of thinking. Instead, he says, no, no, no. If Jesus has part of me, then Jesus has all of me. We can't miss the significance of this, because this is what this whole series is going to be about. I think there are many people who come into our church and they experience Jesus, but they don't understand that it has to carry on past that moment, that your even very way of thinking is going to begin to shift, that your perspective is going to shift as you have new information come to light. And that new information is that Jesus has set you free from a life of slavery, and you do not have to think in the ways that you had before. Instead, no, the Bible says that you are more than a conqueror. So the truth is, yeah, maybe your mom, maybe your dad walked out on you. Maybe they, your parents or somebody said something about you when you were young that, that if you're honest, you, you, just, you just haven't been able to shake. Maybe, maybe you made decisions in your past so many times that it's starting to feel like you just can't help it anymore. Maybe your spouse said something about you that you have never forgotten. And I guess my question is at all of our campuses, is do you want to stay there? Because let me tell you, if you want to die on that hill, I believe the enemy of your souls is quite content to kill you there. And the Bible has painted a new picture, that life in Jesus is no longer thinking in the same ways that we used to think, but instead saying, man, if Jesus holds the entire universe in my hands so that if the earth moved an inch further to the sun, we would all die, then certainly I can trust him with my way of thinking. I want to read you some verses in the Bible that talk about what life looks like now. In Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, it says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. It says, no, 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 we're going to be made new in the attitudes of our minds, and we're going to put on our new self, created like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul writes, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, it is, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him, through him who loved us. 
We have been made more than conquerors. Let me just tell you, when you decide to follow Jesus, the life that you're walking into, I can't help it is no longer allowed to be a part of your vocabulary. Because I can't help it is what people say who haven't experienced Jesus. So how do I leave this life of thinking this way? The Bible makes it clear that Christ, he does the renewing of our minds. Our responsibility is to read his scripture and to begin to pray. And as you read uh, and you, you ask God to change the way that you think, he's going to begin to transform your mind. You're going to begin to think in different ways, healthy, true ways, instead of the lies that you have been fed by culture. You're going to begin to believe things like this. What has happened for you is so much greater than anything that has happened to you. Did that person happen, happen to, to, to hurt you in the past? Yes. But has Jesus set you free from a life of sin and a life of victimhood? Yes. Were you hurt in the past? Have, have you had situations out of your control? Yes. Do they need to define you? No. You're going to begin to believe that what you've been called to is now so much greater than you. Then in essence, when you say, I can't help it, I would say the most important word in that sentence is I. Because all we're thinking about is me, is me. And when you step out of yourself and you begin to see uh, the universe and God for who he is, you begin to realize you are a part of something so much bigger than yourself. The truth that you're going to begin to learn instead of the lie is that you are no longer a slave to your past anymore. You are no longer a slave to sin anymore. Instead, the Bible says that you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been redeemed and adopted by the Most High. I can't help it. Second one is this, the I don't have it mentality. And you'll say things like, man, if I just had enough money, or if I just had enough time, if I just had enough of this, then I would be able to do what God called me to do. And I want to read to you a story about a man who had all the money and all the time in the world. Would you read with me in Mark 10, starting in verse 17, it says this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, give false testimony, defraud. You should honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he said, all these things I have done since I was a boy. I love this verse. Jesus, he looked at him and he loved him. He says, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and says to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Let me just tell you, this man's friends and family probably would have used a lot of words to describe him, and the one word they would have never used is lack. And Jesus, he looks at a man who seemingly has everything and says, you still lack one thing. And I will put it this way. We ask God to bring us enough, and my fear is that if God ever brought us enough, we would forget the very God who brought us what we need. That in fact, maybe the position you're in where you feel like you don't have enough is exactly where you need to be so you can begin to trust the only God who can bring you what you need. It says he has one thing that he lacked. And I want to say this, and I hope this sticks with you. Our ability to follow Jesus has nothing to do with how much we have. It has everything to do with how much he has us. Let me say that again. Our ability to follow Jesus has nothing to do with how much we have. It has everything to do with how much he has us. There's an inconvenient truth that I embraced a long time ago, and it's this. I have everything I need right now to accomplish what God has called me to accomplish right now. 
He loves his kingdom more than I do. He cares about me far more than I do. The Bible says he knows the number of hairs on my head. He has plotted out my path before me. He was thinking about me long before I was ever born. And so if he has called me to this, why would he not give me everything that I need? And so if I feel like I don't have enough, chances are I'm not doing what I need to do with what I have. Our ability to follow Jesus, it, is, it has never been and will never be based on how much we have. It will always be based on how much he has us. We're going to begin to pray this prayer. God, I know that money and resources are not keeping me from what you have for me. Help me to believe it and to live like I have everything I need. Let me read that one more time. God, I know that money and resources are not keeping me from what you have for me. Help me to believe it and live like I have everything that I need. Does this mean that God hates money? No. Does it mean that God hates when we rely on money and make money our God? Yes. The truth is, the more that we have, we begin to realize that that's how much God trusts us, only because we have trusted him to get to where we are. He is able to give us as much as we will be able to handle with still pointing the glory and the honor back to him. The happiest people in the world are not the ones that have the most money. The happiest people in the world who realize their purpose. And they realize that money is a means to an end. And for us, that end is reaching more people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Montgomeryville campus that's going to open. Many of you have sacrificed and dedicated money aside for that campus. You want to know why? Because you're going to buy a seat that somebody's going to sit in, and they're going to meet Jesus in that seat. Like you are going to start a kid's room where somebody's going to experience the love of God from an early age and they're going to be able to bypass all those troubles that you had grown up. That's what we do with our money. We feel like we don't have enough. God's given us everything we need. We are not victims. We're victors. And last one is this, the I can't do it mentality. People don't use people like me. God would never use someone from, from, from my family. If you don't know anything about the Bible, the first half of the Bible is called the Old Testament. It talks about the Israelites, the Jewish nation, the people of God. And you watch over and over and over again. It's pretty much just one story that repeats itself. Israel is obedient to God. Things go well. Israel is disobedient. Things go to crap. And so we watch in this story that I'm about to read to you in Judges 6, the Israelites have been disobedient and they have been overtaken by a nation called the Midianites. Now, the Midianites would have come in around harvest time every year and stripped Israel of all their crops. They were slowly but surely bleeding the Israelites dry. And God calls a man named Gideon to put an end to this. It's been dozens of years since the Israelites have known freedom. And Gideon is approached by an angel of God. And let me read to you what happens, starting in verse 14 of Judges 6. It says this, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Listen to what he says. Pardon me. How can I save Israel? My clan is, is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my family. I am not the right guy. You picked the wrong guy. I have not been to Planet Fitness in several months. I am not the right person to save the Israelites. I'm the weakest of my family. My clan is the smallest of this town. I'm in a small town. In fact, when Gideon is being called, what he's doing is he's being a coward hiding in a cave, stashing his food away behind a rock. And we watch 
as Gideon, he becomes a part of the most unbelievable miracle that takes place in the Old Testament. An army of 30,000 people conquered by an army of 300 people led by Gideon and they do not even raise their sword. Gideon starts off and he says, I can't do this. I can't, you have, you have the wrong guy. How often do we say this about ourselves? I'm gonna be honest with you for myself. If you don't know, I, I, I work uh, up with the Plymouth Meeting Campus. We're about three years old now. And we started with about two dozen people, a little bit over that. Uh, and, 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 you know, after about six months, we had about 40 or 45 people, you know, on a good day. And so when you guys are there right now, just understand that. Uh, and so I remember just praying, God, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how to grow this campus. I don't know how to grow this church. I feel like these people are getting under my skin. I'm probably driving them crazy. Like we just, I don't know what I'm doing. And I remember specifically Easter uh, 2015, we've been open for about five months and I had been praying for weeks that God would bring 80 people to our building. Praying, I mean, day and night. It was, a, I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot to you, but to me, like I would, I would have done a victory dance, right? If 80 people showed up to church on Sunday and I just prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And with about two minutes left before the experience was about to begin, you know, I had gotten really familiar with counting about 40 or 50 people. And we had about 40 or 50 people. And I remember I went out to the patio on, on the front lawn and I said, God, if you don't bring 70 people, I'm bargaining at this point. If you don't bring 70 people, I'm going to quit. Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. This is not working. This is not going to be successful. And I watched over the course of two minutes. I watched 24 people walk into our building. I'll never forget we had 74 people that day. And I remember God almost speaking to me, not verbally, but in my spirit. I remember hearing, you don't have the right to give up. You don't have the right to be a victim anymore. The words, I can't do it, no longer belong in your vocabulary. Why? Because you serve a God who is victorious. You are now a part of the family of God. You've been adopted. You have all the rights now. You were a slave to sin, but you are no longer. And so now you don't have the right to give up. You don't have the right to say that you can't do it because you serve a God that can. I love this verse in 2 Timothy. Timothy is an early pastor in the church, and Paul's writing to him, giving him encouragement, and he says this. For the spirit God gave us, it does not make us timid, but it gives us power and love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. He says, rather join with me in suffering for the gospel. You have not been given a spirit of timidity. You have been given a spirit of boldness and power, risky faith, dangerous. I can't do it no longer belongs in your vocabulary. And so when you say things like this, when you catch yourself thinking, God can't use people like me. God can't use people like my family. I only went to church a couple times my whole life. Instead, you're going to go, no, 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 no. That pastor read a verse that said that I'm more than a conqueror now, that the old self has been put off and the new, the new has come. Or when you catch yourself thinking, man, I can't tell people about Jesus. I can't invite people to church, especially people who knew me before I came to church. People who partied with me, people who seen who I was. I can't invite them to church. They're going to know I'm full of crap. Instead, you're going to say, no, 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 that was the old self. I have been made new. I have been found righteous by the blood of Jesus in the eyes of God. I have been justified. When you catch yourself saying, I can't overcome my anxiety. It's just a part of me. I can't do it. 
I think this verse could read, for the spirit God has given you is not one of anxiety, but it is one of power and love and self-discipline that you have been created to rule and not to be ruled. The Bible says that you are now the head and not the tail. We watch Gideon as his perspective changes and all of these stories, the reason that we see them play out in the way that they do is because somebody experienced Jesus, that's it. They're met with Jesus and their whole life changed. I mean, it's inexplicable. Why would Matthew walk away from a job like that after one person says two words to them? Why would Gideon try to take on 30,000 people with 300? I mean, you do the math. Those are not good odds. And I want us to understand this. Victims get pity and victors get power and you gotta choose which one you want. Let me say that again. Victims get pity and victors get power, but you can't have both. Instead, we're gonna be people who say we have been we have been empowered and we have been given authority by the God who created the heavens and the universe by Jesus who conquered death in the grave itself. There is nothing that is outside of the scope of his power and his word says that the same power that lived in him now lives in me. I'll put it this way. My wife loves puzzles. I hate puzzles. More than anything maybe in the whole world. And it sounds like I'm being drastic, but I would like my house to be clean. I'm that type of personality. And so when a puzzle sits out for weeks on end, I'm likely to go full on Jesus and flip the tables and like it, something boils inside of me. But the real reason I don't like puzzles is because I'm bad at them. And, and to be honest, there's a part of me every time I fill out a puzzle or don't, you know, I, clearly I don't know how to do it because I said fill out a puzzle. But every time, every time that I do a puzzle, there's a part of me that thinks, the cynical part of me, and hear me out, the reason I think it is because I would definitely do it, is that somebody, somebody hilarious was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a different picture on the front of that box. They're thinking they're putting together an ice cream cone, but that's a cat. That's hilarious. I would definitely do that. And every time I'm putting this puzzle together, I'm like, there is no way that this random crap thing of pieces is going to make that windmill with the daisies it's just not but any logical person like my wife would tell you it's going to make the picture on the box when you're done it's going to look like the picture on the box i mean think about it puzzles are the only thing in life where you can't lose as long as you don't give up you already know what's going to look like it's on the front of the box same thing is true in our walk with christ you know why we can be victors instead of victims? Because we know what the end looks like. We are on the winning team. And we don't know how we get there, but we know that the end is Christ victorious. We know that he died, that he rose again, that he is interceding for us and thinking about us at the right hand of the Father and at the exact right moment, he's gonna return and we're gonna spend eternity in perfect unity and harmony with our creator. We already know that part. The only way that we lose is if we give up. And so we're going to be victors, not victims. We're going to have power instead of pity.